Now I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 26. Psalm 26. And just by the way of transparency here, I just want to ask, um, do you guys stand on the ground here or do you stand up in, in the pulpit? <laughs> you stand on the ground. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to see if I can stand up here if it's all right. I just feel like I'm a little bit more in control of the passage. All right. So let's look at Psalm chapter 26. Of course, if you're, if you're regular here, you know that uh, the guys have been preaching through the book of Psalms. So I'm just picking up where Carlton left off last week. And so we'll be in Psalm 26, and I'll read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just examine it for a while. A Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I've hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in integrity. Redeem me, and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, in the remaining moments that we have in this service, we ask that you would show us yourself, that you would give us a strong and deep and abiding understanding of your glory and your greatness and how we fit into that picture, how we can fit into your glory and into your greatness and into your majesty. Father, I pray that the message of Psalm 26 will be clear. I pray that it will be precise, and I pray that it will go out into the deep recesses of our hearts and into our minds, that we may abide in your word, that we may walk in your word, and that we may be able to say with David that we have walked in integrity. Father, we pray right now for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and we know that to be full of the Holy Spirit is not that we need more of you, but you need more of us. And so we would pray that you would dominate our thoughts, that you would dominate our hearts, that you would take our desires and channel them toward your glory and your greatness. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So Psalm 26 is an intensely personal psalm. I don't know if you picked up on that as we read it, but it's extraordinarily personal. 26 times David actually uses the words, I me or my. In 12 verses, 26 times, I, me, my. And then another 12 times, he uses the word Lord or your or yours. There is not a great 
focus on the congregations. He mentions the congregations as an outworking of his relationship with God. But here in this moment, David is concerned about one thing. He is concerned about his relationship with God. Now, I just want to stop right now and say one thing I learned from this passage is what I want to relay to you is that there is nothing more important about you than your relationship with God. You you may have a lot going on in your life, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of good things, a lot of things that fill your mind and your heart, but I will tell you, at the end of the day, there is nothing more important about you than your own relationship with God himself. And that's the heartbeat of David in Psalm 26. And it was the heartbeat of A.W. Tozer, reading Tozer recently, and listen to what Tozer said. He said, I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has, or I don't want anything. End of quote. And I want to tell you, that is the heartbeat of David in this psalm. I want you, God. I want you fully. I want you completely, or I don't want you at all. And I think that should be the heartbeat of every Christian, of every believer, of every person in this building right now. I want all of you, God, or none of you. Now, one of the weaknesses of the contemporary church, I believe, is taking the presence of God and our own relationship with God too lightly, too casually. I think that we take personal worship too casual. We take family worship too casual. We take corporate worship often too casually and and too lightly. I think it's because likely that we we take for granted the grace of God. We take for granted what it took for us to, to inherit grace to inherit all the promises that are yes in Christ Jesus. I think we take that too lightly. But here in the Psalms, maybe 500 years plus before Jesus Christ ever came, we have a man who's taking very seriously what it means to worship. And so what I want you to see here in this text is four requests. Four requests that reveal a passion for God. Four requests. You'll see them. They'll be plain. But I want you to see that these are four requests that you also should make. Four requests that I should make if we're serious about our relationship with God. Look at verse 1. We have the first request. The first request is vindication. Vindication. Look, he says, vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord. Now, it would be proper for me right now to tell you that this, this word vindicate really, in its most literal sense, is judge. Judge me, God. Render a right judgment of my very being, of my life, of of the state of where I am right now. Now, the reason that the New King James and the NIV and possibly even the ESV actually render it vindicate is because it's an interpretive rendering saying, hey, this is who I am, this is what I've done, this is how I'm attached to you, and so in your judgment, I ultimately want you to clear my name, ultimately want you to declare me righteous, ultimately want to be found innocent in your sight. But in reality, in its most literal sense, simply David is saying, judge me. Judge me. Render a judgment on my life. And by doing this, by saying this to God, he's saying, I'm not so concerned about what I look like in the mirror. You know, even though this was before this proverb was written, David knew the reality that, that uh, you know, a man looks at himself in his own eyes and he renders judgment, but it's not the man's opinion that counts. Whose opinion does it count? It is God who tests the spirits. David knew that. David also knew that it wasn't the opinion of other men. 
It wasn't the opinion of, of his commander, Joab, or it wasn't the opinion of his sons who maybe thought less of him, or his naysayers and the, and the people of Israel who, who rendered all kinds of judgments about whether or not he was leading well or not. What mattered to David most was God's judgment of his life. The fact is, God is a judge. And Psalm 75 says that God is the judge, and he is the one who will exalt the righteous and bring down the lowly. And so he says, vindicate me or judge me. Judge my life. Now look at the reasoning. He gives a reasoning right after in the second, third, and fourth part of verse 1. He says, for I have walked in my integrity. Now if you look over at verse 12, uh, at the end of, I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Same phraseology, one in past tense, one in future tense, and essentially it's like a bracket. You know, so at the beginning he says, I've walked in my integrity. At the end of the psalm he says, I will walk in my integrity. It's a very important concept. But I want us to understand something about integrity. Right? Oftentimes we understand integrity as me being the same person in private as I am in public. All right, me being the same person in private as I am in public. And that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, that, that definition. It's just that it's a little bit short-sighted, especially to David's interest. Because listen, if you're a business person and you do business with a lot of people and you're in partnerships with people possibly that maybe not even be Christians, but for no reason of your own, you're in partnership or in business with them, and you can sometimes say, well, that man or that woman is a person of integrity. If they tell me that they're going to do it, they're going to do it. If they tell me they're not going to do it, I know they will not do it, even though they're not Christians. And we say, that person has integrity. Well, they may have integrity according to the way that the world defines it. And and we applaud them for that, for being a person of their word most of the time. But when David says integrity, that's not exactly what he means. When he says integrity, this word integrity means fullness. It means completeness. And listen, David was a sinner. Y'all read Psalm 25 last week. He says, don't remember the sins of my youth. Remember remember my evil ways no more. He knew he was a sinner. This is what he means by integrity. He means by completely and fully walking in dependence on God. God's justifying grace and his sanctifying grace. In other words, it's, David's not saying I never lie. I've never deceived. I've never done a, a harmful thing to my wife. But what he would be saying is this, is that when I do lie, when I do deceive, When I do a harmful thing to my wife, I don't hide it, but I confess it. And I bring it before my spouse. And I bring it before the people that I've sinned. And I trust in the goodness of God to forgive me and to walk in that kind of honesty of life. Now, do you all see the difference? You see the difference in the two kinds of definitions of integrity? That's what David means. So don't think that David is saying, oh, for the last 30 years, I've really walked sinlessly. I've walked in sinless uh, perfection. That's not it at all. It's humble dependence on God, and we know that because the rest of the psalm talks about it. Even look at the next verse. I mean, the next uh, little phrase. He says, I have also trusted in the Lord. In other words, I don't trust in myself. This word trust... Very interesting in the Hebrew, it means to literally cast your face down, in this case, before the Lord. In other words, David is saying, I have not stood my ground, I have not stood erect with my face up and said, God, look at my integrity, look how sharp I am, look how how excellent is my way of life. No, he said, 
Look how I have bowed down and put my face to the ground and said, I depend on you for my hope. I depend on you for my righteousness. There's a huge difference. I I remember a a quote that I heard at one point uh, in my teenage years that says, when you're at the end of your rope, there's always hope. Now, I don't want to demean that statement altogether, but what David would say about that, he would say, I'm always at the end of my rope. I've got no personal integrity to depend on. I don't don't have that. I'm at the end of my rope, and I depend on God and his integrity, his completeness, his fullness. And so he has faith. He lives a life of dependence on God. Now, in the New King James, translates it, I shall not slip. Some of your versions of the ESV, I think, uh, combine that with faith. But in other words, he's just simply saying, God, judge me because I've walked in integrity. That is, I've walked in dependence on you. I have faith in you. I trust in you. So now I let my my foot not slip. And so he says, judge me. He says, judge me. So there you have the first request, vindication. Request number two is examination. Examination. And we see this two through eight. But we see the first request here in verse two. He says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Essentially, he's saying, scrutinize me, test me, try me. I want you to search my heart. I want you to search my soul. I want you to go down into the deep recesses of my will and my desires and my delights. And I want you to bring out of that whatever is ugly, whatever is sinful, whatever should not be there. I want you to know what's in me, and I want to know what's in me, because when I enter into the temple, I want to be clean. And we'll see that in just a moment. And that's the heart of a worshiper. In Job chapter 23, verse 10, Job actually talks about this and uses the same phraseology. And he basically says, God, test me as if you are testing gold and bringing out gold on the other end of the fiery trial. I want you to try me as if through a fiery trial so that you can see all the dross, so that you can see all the ugliness, and you can peel it away so that I can be pure in your sight. He wants to be examined. He wants to be examined. Now, for those of you who are college football fans, what if your favorite university, your favorite team, had its athletic director just with his own will and his own volition pick up the phone and call Mark Emmerich, the head of the NCAA, and said, uh, hey, Mark, um, I'd like for you to come down with all of your agents, every one of them. Come down yourself. And we just want a full investigation of our entire program. If you would, just uh, the athletic department, all the ways that our coaches are conducting its business, all the ways that our athletes are conducting their business, all of their boosters, all of the people who are giving us money, all the people who go to the games, everybody. And maybe go 10 years past and then forward. And then once you find out the results, um, tell us what they are and then render whatever judgment you want to render. Do you think that phone call has ever been made? No. That phone call has never been made. No athletic director wants that kind of scrutiny. Why? Because the NCAA is ruthless. They're absolutely ruthless. And yet, David, when he thinks about God and he asks for scrutiny, he says, investigate everything. My heart, my soul, the deep recesses of who I am. I want you to see it all. And once you do, God, I want you to just examine it and show it to me. And I want to come clean before you. And why is he so confident before God? Because God is not ruthless. God is merciful. And he is full of grace 
And when we're exposed to him and he sees us, he doesn't say, get away from me. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, let's look at the reasoning here. He says, examine me. First of all, because I'm, I'm dependent on you. Your loving kindness is before my eyes. I've walked in your truth. That loving kindness there, it's, it's the Hebrew he has said. You know, it's, it's, his, it's God's loyal love. It's the fact that God has made a covenant with his people and he's vowed to keep that covenant. And there is nothing about him that will keep him from from keeping the covenant that he's made with his people. And he says, listen, your covenant love, your loyal love is with me and I know it. And I'm basing my prayer of examination on the fact that you are not going to kick me to the curb when you see my sin. But you're going to keep me. Maybe even because I'm confessing my sin to you. And then he, I, w- I want to bring out one little part of this phrase in, in verse 3. He says, and I have walked in your truth. I think that it, when we think about truth and walking in truth, we oftentimes think, oh, well, we're walking according to the word of God. And so we've kept the word of God. And so we're obeying the word of God. And so David is saying, hey, I'm asking for you to investigate me because I have walked according to the word of God. That is not exactly what he's saying here. When it's talking about truth here, he's actually saying, hey, your faithfulness, your loyalty, your completeness. In other words, I'm walking not in my own faithfulness, but in your faithfulness and my dependence on how loyal you are. And so he's dependent on God, not on himself. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, "I've, I've, I've not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I've hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Not sure what the ESV says there regarding idolatrous mortals, but it means men of nothingness. Men of vanity. I've not sat with them. I've not taken counsel with them. I've not become close friends with them. And then he says, hypocrites. I don't want to be with these people who conceal their real identity. Are they sinners? Yes, but they don't act like they're sinners. They don't confess that they're sinners. Am I a sinner? Yes, but I confess it before you. And I'm seeking guidance from you. I'm seeking vindication from you. I'm seeking examination from you. And then look, he has a a desire for communion. And and guys, verses 6 to 8 are the climax of this passage right here. It is the very pinnacle. This This is really the essence of the psalm. So let me read it for you again. He says, I will wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And he has a desire for communion. He has a desire to be in the presence of God. He can't wait. He's outside the tabernacle. And in this case, we don't know where David is. We don't even know how old he is. We don't know what all he's experienced at this point. But one thing is for sure, he wants to be inside that tabernacle. He wants to pass by that laver of water that he can wash his hands. He wants to go around that that altar of sacrifice. He wants to circle around it. He wants to see the sacrifice that's being made on his behalf. He wants to feel like he's in the presence of God and know that he's in the presence of God and be able to say hallelujah this is my God that's his desire this is his yearning it's his longing when he says I wash my hands in innocence he's not saying he is innocent he's saying as you examine me and I confess my sin what I want to do is I want to enter into the tabernacle and I want to take my hands and put them through that laver get that water on me and let it be a symbol that though it looks like my hands are clean what's really saying is my heart is clean before you 
You've examined me. You've tried me. You've tested me. And then when he says, I will go about, he says, I must go about. I must surround. He's actually saying that I want to encircle. I want to encircle the altar. I want to see that sacrifice. And I want to, I want to revel in it. And then he says, I must proclaim and tell of all your wondrous works. This idea of proclaiming and telling, literally it means to count, to recount, or give a full accounting of. What does David have in mind here? He has in mind that he's going to tell the congregation how awesome God has been in his life. Depending on when David wrote this, he would be able to say, when I was a shepherd boy, undeserving of grace. God sought me and made me His own. When I was but a shepherd boy, God ordained me to be His king. When I faced Goliath as a teenager, God delivered me from him. And then when Saul sought my life, God rescued me and preserved my life against his constant going after me. And even when my own son came after me to take my place, he has protected me and and given me a shelter and been a refuge for me. And what David is saying is, I want to go into the congregation and I want to tell of all of his wondrous works. And y'all, as worshipers, This is the kind of heart that we should have. We should want to tell of all of His wondrous works. Because I will tell you, for every believer who is represented in this building today, you have wondrous works to tell that God has done in your life. And what David would say is don't keep quiet about those. Take an accounting of them. Be an accountant with His mighty works and then go and proclaim them to the congregations. And in that way, you strengthen one another's faith and you strengthen one another's worship to one another. And so he has a desire for communion. All right, let's look at the third request that he makes. We see it in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. This request is for protection. Protection. So you got vindication, examination, and protection. Do not gather my soul with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men. What are you saying here, David? What, what are you, who, who are you referring to? Well, we know that at different times in David's life, he, he faced bloodthirsty men. He faced various sinners who were coming after him. And we don't know exactly which ones these are. But regardless of what it is, he says, I don't want to be with them. I don't want, not only want to be counted among them, but I don't want to receive the same lot in life that they have received. Because I know you're a judge, and you're a good judge. And you judge those who are guilty. And if they're not found in you, if sacrifice has not been made for them, then you're going to ultimately and finally send them to eternal judgment. And I don't want to be numbered with them. Now look at his reasoning. Look at his reason. He says, number one, their conduct. Their hands have a sinister scheme. Their, their right hand is, is full of bribes. In other words, they want to hurt people. They want to abuse the needy. They want to take from, they want to take from the orphans and they want to mistreat those who, who have no way to help themselves. I don't want to be numbered to those people. They hate what I love. And I love what they hate. So don't lump me in with them, God. But protect me from them and protect me from the final and ultimate judgment that they are going to receive. And then look at the verse part of verse 11. He says, and also because of my commitment. He says, but, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. It harkens back to verse 1. And he's saying, I'm going to continue to live in dependence on you fully. Fully, I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to trust you and all of your trustworthiness. 
and the covenant love that you have with me. I'm not going to waver from that. And when I do sin, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to ask for examination. And I'm going to trust in ultimate vindication, a clearing of my name. And so that's the protection that he asked for. And then finally, look at the end of verse 11. He says, redeem me and be merciful to me. This is request number four. Request number four is redemption. Redeem me and be merciful to me. Now, if you enjoy studying the Bible, one of the first questions that you likely would ask here is, isn't he already redeemed? Isn't he already a Christian? What is he referring to here? Redeem me. Well, you know how sometimes we talk about salvation in a past tense, in a present tense, and in a future tense? You know how sometimes we talk about how we were saved? I was saved on such and such date. I am being saved, Paul says. And then he says, and ultimately, I will be saved. I think there's an element of redemption that is, that is this way too. In other words, you've redeemed me. What is redemption? It is a buying back. It, it is a purchasing out of bondage and into freedom. So the person who is redeemed is out of the bondage of, in this case, sin, and out of the bondage of enslavery, possibly to evil people and bloodthirsty men, and then ultimately deliverance into the freedom of knowledge of God, worship of God, enjoyment of God, and all of the different protections that he offers along with that. And I think what David is actually saying here is I've been spiritually redeemed, yes. I've known, I know what salvation is. And you've even redeemed me through a lot of physical circumstances in my life. But what I'm really looking forward to is ultimate redemption. The day in which I'm going to be able to behold your glory. The day in which I'm going to be able to see you and that eternal security and that eternal vindication is going to be mine. So that you know what? I will never have to pray for vindication again. I will never have to pray for examination again. I will never have to pray for protection again. Why? Because all of those things are final and done and I have been redeemed. You know what Job said? Job said, I have a redeemer. Did he not? And he says, my redeemer lives. And David knew that as well. And he knew one day his redeemer would get him all the way to freedom out of the bondage of this life. And then he gives kind of some reasoning at the end of of this psalm. He says, number one, you're reliable. My foot stands in an even place, a level place, an upright place. Friday, my family and I went to Whitewater. Uh, we, um, some folks had given us some tickets. It was our first trip. And I just, this is kind of an aside, but I just want to say that if you're a Christian, in a particular Christian family, I encourage you to go to Whitewater just to test your sanctification. Just, just, just to see how much you really love one another. You know, how much are you committed to your children? How much are your, your children committed to obeying and following you? All right? Now, with that being said, my youngest son, Ab, and I went on a, a, a very um, fast ride. It was a double float type thing. So it had two holes in it. And the bigger person gets in the back and the smaller person gets in the front. And he met the qualifications. But once we got up there and we actually got into that float, Adam couldn't get his arms and his legs kind of uh, outside holding onto the float. And so he was sinking down through the hole. 
And so as we started down this windy, fast, slippery slope, I had to stick my legs underneath his arms. And I'm having to hold up his whole body because water is gushing over his face. He's going to go underneath the the, the raft. And uh, who knows what's going to happen at that point. And then when we get down to the pool, the water is just bubbling up. And when we finally crash down, he's sunk down so low that water covers over his face. And and as we were going down, it was scary because we we were going up and over the walls. And it looked like we might actually go across you know, and it was, it was a very scary moment for him, I know, and for me as a dad. I didn't say this, but you know what I could have said once we got down and out of that little pool of water. I could have said to Adam, Adam, it's a good thing that following God and worshiping God is not like this ride. It's a good thing because we're on level ground. He doesn't totter. He doesn't move. There's no hole to fall down through because when you stand with God, you stand on level ground. And if I, were to, if I were to project that toward the cross, you know, y'all probably all heard that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we're all sinners, and we are. Every one of us are the same before the cross as sinners, but we're also the same as heirs of the kingdom of God, where we stand in righteousness before God. There is no teetering, there is no falling, there is no, there is no going across the edge. And so when he says, I stand in an even place, he says, you are reliable. And for that reason, he says, in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. And so you have the vindication, the examination, the protection, and redemption. I want to ask this. uh, I've been preaching for 29 minutes. Do we have any more time to make some applications? Okay, let's make some applications. If you're taking notes, uh, this this is how we can uh, apply uh, this passage. When you're studying the Bible... One of the key questions that you want to ask is what does this say about God? What does this psalm say about God? And I want to tell you what it says about God under the four headings, vindication, examination, protection, and redemption. The first thing it says is that God is a judge. I don't don't want anybody to leave the service today thinking that that God is just kind of willy-nilly with our sin and with our lives, but in fact, He is going to render account. Hebrews tells us, that is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so God is a judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And we need to understand the judgment of God, and that apart from Jesus Christ, you will be judged in your sins. You will have no integrity to stand on. And you will not, when you are weighed in the scales of God, you will be found wanting. But because of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that there is salvation through faith in Jesus, God has judged your sin and your unrighteousness and your lack of integrity on His Son. And He has put your guilt and your condemnation upon His Son. And He has said to His Son, I am punishing you now and judging you now because of the sin of these people so that you can give them your righteousness. And so to apply this, God is a judge You need to understand it, and then you need to embrace the only one who can save you from that judgment, Jesus Christ. The second application is examination, is that God is an investigator. God is an investigator. Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways. I think that we need not be blind or ignorant to the reality that God sees everything, that He knows everything. 
and that he searches everything about us. And we need to know that he investigates those things. I think that it would be very important for worshipers of God, for us not to try to hide our sin, us not to try to tuck our sin into a closet in our heart and just say, well, maybe that just won't get found out. The scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. God will investigate it. Let me tell you, it is better for you to open up before God and say, investigate me fully and cleanse me than it is to try to hide, to try to cover it up. Because where there is that confession and investigation, then there is cleansing, there is forgiveness, there is freedom, and there is joy. And then you can say with David, I long to be in the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The third one, God is a protector. I know that surely about four weeks ago, you guys studied Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. You guys remember that passage? And surely you talked about the protecting, shepherding nature of God. And I will tell you, God is our greatest protector through the provision of Jesus Christ. You realize that Jesus, as the good shepherd, was shepherding his people as he hung on Calvary? As he absorbed the wrath of God for sinners like you and me, you realize he was shepherding us and protecting us from the condemnation and the wrath and the anger and the, and the ultimate hell that we deserve because he was a shepherd. He is a protector. When David prayed for protection in Psalm 26, that was ultimately answered by God on Calvary at Golgotha when Jesus absorbed righteous wrath. And then Number four, redemption. You can say that God is a redeemer. God is a redeemer. God alone has the ability to save you and I from our sins, from the captivity of the bondage of our sin. And he, he exemplifies his power and his strength at the cross and in the resurrection and then ultimately at the, the ascension of Jesus and his return one day for his saints. He is an ultimate redeemer. I just want to make this plea. If there's anybody here right now who's never given their life to Christ, who's never trusted in the Redeemer, the one who buys back people by the blood of His beloved Son, you can have that opportunity right now. You can give your life to Christ. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have all those hidden things that you've kept away from people, that you've kept away from your parents or away from your spouse because you, you, you know that if you were to ever confess them to anybody, you would be ridiculed, you would be made fun of, you might even get left. You can confess those things to God. God can cleanse you and He can restore all relationships. Why? Because He is a Redeemer. And if you do that, you can say with Job, my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. And so in this text, we see vindication, we see examination, we see protection, and we ultimately see redemption. And I think if we were studying it rightly, we would all see ourselves before a holy God, and we could thank Him for what's been done for us in Christ, but we can search for Him as passionately as David did in order to know Him and be in His presence.